Diversity in Action podcast presented by the BLX Internship Program. Join us as our hosts, Emlyn Miles Mattingly and Louise Rosa interview guests from across the financial planning field to highlight the real change that's happening in our industry. If you're tired of just talking about diversity and want to learn about what's really being done to make the demographics of our profession more closely match the population of this country, this podcast is for you. This episode is brought to you by Schwab Advisor Services in partnership with the Charles Schwab Foundation. For more than 30 years, Schwab Advisor Services has proudly supported firms of all types and sizes. Today, the custodian has earned the trust of nearly 15,000 firms by focusing on the RA model, a client-first mentality, and the perfect blend of personalization and technology. Schwab Advisor Services University Grant Program, in partnership with the Charles Schwab Foundation, has provided more than $16 million in gifts to over 20 universities and organizations since the program's inception in 2007. The program has supported the creation of financial planning majors, minors, and CFP certificate programs at universities across the country. The goal of this program is to support universities and organizations that could benefit from Schwab's involvement while working to be the industry-leading champion in developing world-class talent on behalf of advisors. The program was designed to create awareness of the registered investment advisor profession, extend access and awareness to the financial services industry, and develop a pipeline of high-quality talent for independent advisors to hire. Welcome back to the Diversity in Action podcast with your host, Inland Miles Mattingly, and my co-host, Luis Rosa. Today, we are excited to have two incredible guests with us. These two women are powerhouses in the industry. Absolutely love them. And most of all, they're just good friends. They're great friends of mine. So today, we are going to introduce Sonia Dreisler and Liv Gagan. And so wanted to talk to you a little bit about Sonia and give you a little background for those of you that might not know this incredible woman that is going to blow your mind today. Sonia is the co-founder of Wire, as well as an author and speaker. She's focused on fostering candid conversations about gender and race and financial services. Her professional background includes nearly two decades, 14 years in traditional finance investment roles, and including a CEO of a broker-dealer and an RA for about six years, six years as a consultant, and most recently, co-founding Choir. She's an outspoken advocate for gender and race in finance, and I'm proud to call her my friend. I'll let Luis introduce Liv. Thank you, Emlyn. So Liv is co-founder of Choir and is a media PR and branding expert. She has helped dozens of companies launch into the public eye with a focus on social values. Liv's wide-ranging experience in the financial services space includes working with companies ranging from fintech startups to multi-billion dollar institutions. She has extensive experience in the wealth management industry and a deep knowledge of financial trade and consumer media. So thank you both for being here. Welcome. I'm super excited about this episode for our audience to know both of you, what you're doing with Choir and just helping move the needle forward. Welcome. Thank you. We're excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. So as we're giving out your you know, kind of talking about all the stuff you've done, both of you in the industry and just your career trajectory and, and just being friends. Like I've said that four times already, but I love both of you. So if there's something that we missed in those introductions, please add something to it. Please give a little more background if you wouldn't mind for the listeners. I think that we may have left something out. This is Sonia. I can add something from mine that I think will probably be relevant to the discussion today. Like you said, I've been in the industry about 20 years, the first 14 years or so in very traditional roles in financial services. And then in the last six years, consulting, writing, speaking, and then building and launching Choir with Liv. 
And one of the interesting things that is not in my bio is that when I was in those traditional financial services roles, I started as an executive assistant and did almost everything in between that and being CEO of the BDRA hybrid, including briefly, I went and got my CFP designation and was a financial planner briefly, but it wasn't really for me. But I always felt in that role that because of just the company culture that I worked at, I had to have my personal life and my work life very separate. And so I've always been a advocate for gender equity and the rights of women and girls. And in the last oh, 10-ish years, as a white person, I had kind of a wake-up call maybe 10 years ago about racial inequity in this country. And so got very active in that space in my personal life and always had to keep them very siloed from each other, right? Like professional Sony went to work and talked about work and then got off work and, you know, changed out of my suit and my jeans and t-shirt and had very different conversations and different interests. And that was actually very hard. I didn't realize how hard it was until I didn't have to do that anymore. And it's such a pleasure now to marry those two things. My platform experience and interest in financial services and my deep passion for racial and gender equity. And like putting those two things together, that feels like this portion of my career. And definitely you can see it in Choir, which we'll talk about. Thank you for sharing that. And out of curiosity, Sonia, do you still maintain your CFP designation or did you give it up? No, actually, I gave it up, but only fairly recently. So I thought that I wanted to be a CFP. Rather, I knew what I was doing was not satisfying. There were parts of my job I didn't like. And the only thing I could think of was, well, I'll go get my CFP designation which was a you know long, expensive process, Yeah, <laughs> which I did. And then I started taking clients. And because I worked at an RIA and had really good relationships with advisors, I was able to take over a practice for somebody who was retiring. And I did it for about a year and a half and realized I didn't really like it. It just wasn't for me. I know that people love it. And I'm so glad there are people who love it. It just didn't feel like a good fit for me. And so I transferred the clients to somebody in my office and then was no longer doing any financial planning. But I did keep the designation because having those letters on my business card gave me instant validation in the eyes of people that I would meet. And especially as I became a young woman executive, there's so few women and so few young women executives. And I would go to an executive conference and people would ask me, you know, whose assistant I was or whose wife I was, that kind of thing. And it felt better to me to be able to start with giving my business card. Here you go. Like, we'll just start there before you ask me some stupid question and preempt that, that had my name, my title and the designation, because that designation is so meaningful in our industry. And so I kept it and I kept it probably for longer than I needed. Once I had really established myself and my platform, I probably didn't need all that, but I kept it anyways. It was like a security blanket, honestly. I think I gave it up two or three years ago only and hadn't used it for quite a long time. So I really don't need it anymore. (laughs) I had a follow-up question just because of the deep and meaningful work that you do, especially around gender. Where did that passion come from? That's been there as 
long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. When I was little, I wanted to be president of the United States or make advertisements for TV, one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom ran a business. I watched her start and run and grow a successful business when I was growing up. My grandma on my dad's side was the first woman to chair a city department in the city where she lives. So it's on both sides of my family. I had really good role models and I think I could sense some inequity without, we didn't really talk about it very much, but I could kind of sense it. And I don't know, I've always just been ambitious and driven and happened to be a woman and realized that those two things are sometimes, unfortunately, at odds for systemic reasons. Yeah, you had some good role models. And you know, when you were sharing your story, I was like, wow, I've heard this before. It's incredible how still to this day, women feel that way when they attend a conference in our industry where it's mostly men. And a lot of the times people just assume that you're some sort of assistant or somebody's spouse. You know, it's just incredible that that still happens. Me as a Latino advisor, I have a similar story as well. Like still to this day, sometimes I, you know, I go to a conference and still I am the only one, (laughs) you know, with the CFE designation that it's an advisor and have my own firm. It's like, the numbers are already small enough. And then I feel like I'm in a, even a smaller place because not only am I one of the few Hispanic CFP certificates, but also fee only and own my own firm, which is almost unheard of, right? Right. <laughs> it is crazy. Thank you for sharing that. So Liv, tell us how you got here. Tell us a little bit about what we may have missed in your intro. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in the financial industry for about 10 years now working on the PR, branding, and media side. I stumbled into it completely not wanting to work in finance, completely on accident. I had worked a few years down in Nashville in the PR agency generalist world and decided it'd be a great idea to sell my stuff, move up north, and move to New York City. So as a 20... Three-year-old living in Brooklyn, I took the first job opportunity that was given to me, even though I specifically told the recruiter the only industry I don't want to work in is finance, because to me, finance was old white dudes in suits. I can't relate to it. At the time, I have maybe a debit card and I'm paycheck to paycheck and couldn't relate to it at all, but started working at a financial services PR agency. And really, just for a few years, I never was able to relate to the work that I did. I was similar to Sonia, not able to show up as myself in that industry. I spent my days telling other people's stories that really, to me, weren't differentiated, didn't resonate with me. And so when I had a life incident happened when I was in my mid-20s. I lost my mom. And when you lose someone really close to you, it makes you think. And as terrible as that is, I feel so lucky to have gone through a situation like that so young because it brought this sense of what am I doing with my life? What is the purpose? Is this really it? And I still remember I was sitting on the two train going to work and I looked around at everyone on the subway and actually looked at them, which you don't really do in New York. You kind of just like pretend no one else exists. Taboo, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I just had this overwhelming sense of 
this is not living. None of these people are excited to go about their day. And I got to work and went into a booth and Googled, how do you start an LLC? And realized I can do this with more purpose and use my talents for telling the stories that I want to tell. And I left and started my own company. And I started Portaga and working mostly with impact-driven companies, companies that were either led by underrepresented people or doing work that was really different and human-focused and helping them launch into the industry and tell their stories. And so I worked very much behind the scenes my entire career, helping other people share their passions with the world. And it was in 2020, just the world's burning. And my standout moment, like so many, was after the murder of George Floyd. And I was getting a lot of inbound requests from media and journalists asking, do you work with Black advisors? Do you work with Black business owners? We want to speak to sources. And then that kind of trickled into speaking to people in the AAPI community around the Asian hate crimes. And I'm like, how terrible is it that we're waiting for these terrible things to happen in our world before reporters are specifically asking for those perspectives? So that's kind of what led to the choir idea. I thought, wouldn't it be something if when media or conference organizers were looking for experts, they pulled up a list of everyone except for white men. Like, wouldn't that be crazy? And I called Sonia, who I had worked with both as a client at one point, and we shared other clients. And I thought, if Sonia Dreisler, of all people, thinks that my idea is good, maybe I actually have something here. And not only did she think it was good, but she called back like an hour and was like, I want in. I want to be clear. I want to be a part of this. And that's how choir started. We really built through the entire year of 2021 and didn't even meet each other until after we had signed our business agreements. And we had our first meeting in a parking lot of a motel on the coast of California. This is when COVID was like raging. And I think it was like pre-vax before we had gotten vaccinated. Anyways, we were really trying to be very cautious and not get sick. And yeah, so we had these giant white, you know, like giant post-it, easel post-its. We had them on the wall of the motel while we were sitting at one point so a lady could charge her tesla yeah true story Um, (laughs) of our folding chairs (laughs) it's quite a wild ride but you know similar to sonia but in a very different part of the industry and career path got it wow that's amazing i love the story and what kind of impact have you seen so far that you've had with the work that you're doing in terms of making sure that conferences are more diverse. Do you have like a rating system as well that you've created? Tell us about that. Yeah. Do you want the quick overview of choir for your listeners? Absolutely. Yeah. So the kernel of the idea was connecting, like Liv said, connecting journalists with women, non-binary, people of color, folks who are experts in financial services. And as we developed the idea, I said, this conference organizers need the same thing. 
because people call me for that. They're like, oh, can you help me find a woman? Can you help me find people of color for this that have XYZ expertise? Because they know I have a good network. And I thought, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be amazing if conference organizers could do that themselves instead of me calling everybody in my network, which just takes a lot of time. And it's not just me that conference organizers and journalists are calling, it's other women, other people of color. And so this work, it is work. It's unpaid work <laughs> to make all these connections falls on people who are already probably stretched thin and underpaid compared to their peers. So we just wanted to create a place where conference organizers and journalists could go and meet these experts, right? Based on their subject matter expertise. So we started to build that and then had the idea we kind of realized that for conferences, we needed to not just come up with a solution, but also talk about what the problem is. And the problem is that we keep putting the same people on stage. We as an industry keep putting the same people on stage over and over, and we're not getting a lot of different perspectives, which it's frankly boring and can be so much more interesting and better for business in addition to being more diverse and inclusive. It can be all those things at once when we start to lift up the voices of women and people of color and especially women of color. And so we set out on this mission to start with conferences and we have a conference diversity certification where we look at the agenda of a conference. First, we work with conference organizers to help them bring more visibility to the women and people of color who they're already working with, and then introduce them to additional experts and talent. And then after the conference is over, we look at the final agenda and we have an algorithm that scores how well the conference included and highlighted the voices of women, non-binary folks, and people of color in comparison to their representation in the U.S. population. There's seven different visibility factors that we look at for each speaking spot to make sure that it's not just having a diverse array of people. It's not just who is speaking, but where are they speaking? When are they speaking? For how long do they get the stage themselves? Are they keynote speakers or are they pigeonholed to, you know, we have seen this frequently, all the Black women speakers, no matter their title, their expertise, even if they're the CEO of a bank, they are in the diversity panel that's happening at the same time as for other sessions. And if that's the level of visibility that you're giving to women of color, that's not enough. <laughs> Diversities are really, and equity and inclusion, they're all really important topics, but that is one topic. And women of color, women and people of color in general can speak about all kinds of things, including their financial expertise. And so we look at, these visibility factors to score the conference. And so, yes, we do have a conference certification program and happy to be working with lots of leading industry conferences. It's been really, really well received. Yeah, I love that. I want to ask you too, in a minute about so far what you found from the research after evaluating all the conferences, but I want to touch back on some of the stuff you mentioned, which I agree with 100%. I find a lot, including myself, when I do get invited to speak at a conference, a lot of the time it's related to being on a diversity, equity, inclusion panel. Now, I'm not a DEI expert, 
you know, I'm in this space, right? We created the BLX internship program and all, but at the end of the day, I am a financial planner with expertise in other different areas, right? And I find yeah. that a lot of the time. Exactly. Yeah, I find, like you said, like even CEOs and it's like they're pigeonholed into this box. So like, okay, we're going to have them in the diversity and inclusion panel. And like you mentioned, it's also a panel that's going on at the same time with three other <laughs> things. So it's not really getting much of a highlight anyway. So the crowd isn't as big. It's like only the people who are truly interested in it show up and right, it's usually exactly. not a large crowd, right? And it's usually other women and people of color, <laughs> right. people who understand some of the problem already. You said something, Luis. It's crazy because I'm an advisor. I'm a CFP, said I'm an EA. I'm not a diversity expert. But how are you not a diversity expert, Luis? You're from a diverse background. You should know everything there is to know about diversity. And we should just put you on the panel so that you can say everything that, you know, you can represent every Latino that's out there. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what happens when you do that. Yes. So I'm so glad that choir is here so that we can stop that. Because I think a lot of times in circles, they're patting themselves on the back for having that diversity panel. We put together a diversity panel. Look at this. Look at the panel over the man. That, you know, I had 35 speakers here. We got one diversity panel going on at the same time as we have the main stage speaker going on. I hope someone gets it. I don't know why everybody's not attending. And I'm just glad that that's going to change. Yeah. And I think we've talked to a lot of conference organizers and I think many of them want to do better. They want help. They're well-intentioned and just haven't had much exposure or understanding of deeper equity, justice, and inclusion issues. And so when we can talk with them about that, this topic specifically, like the diversity panel topic, can be a real light bulb moment for folks. And we have all these tools and resources so that we can help conference organizers to incorporate more voices throughout the agenda and really go from good intentions to excellent execution. Yeah, absolutely. And Liv, tell us a little bit the paid aspect of it too. Is that one of the factors that you also evaluate? Because I also find too, like a lot of the times you get invited to these panels and stuff and it's like, oh, we'll give you a conference pass, but you have to pay for your own flight and hotel or something. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like I have to go and pay in addition to getting away from my business to then go there and do this panel. Like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, that's a major problem and gap within the industry. We don't have the payment of speakers as one of our seven visibility factors because the spectrum of what types of panels are paid, how much, and how willing folks are to take paid or unpaid speaking opportunities is so broad. But where we do have it incorporated is when we work with conferences and we often get the question of how do we find more people or, well, we've asked, I don't know, 10 people of color and only two of them said yes. And that is something that conference organizers, if you want to build an event in which people of color and especially women of color want to or are able to spend their time and their energy into participating in, paying them is a great way to attract new voices. And that's an area that we often recommend conferences, you know, work more into their budget and be transparent about it. Because what happens is panelists who put in so much time and energy, and we know that folks from underrepresented 
groups prepare more, they put in more energy because they don't have the room to mess up like other folks do. And so we know that they're putting all of this work into these opportunities. And if conferences aren't compensating them in any way, panelists start talking to each other around the industry. And that's why conferences might find that they aren't attracting diverse speakers. So that's definitely a part that we have open conversations with conferences. And we have a few ideas on the horizon on how to start speaking about speaker paid transparency more broadly across the industry. And just like with the certification where we really built it to define the problem and define what representation means, we both agree that we need to do that for paid spots as well. Define what it means to have valuable compensation for speakers. And in the meantime, I think probably the most important thing that we tell conferences is to be transparent about when you reach out to somebody to speak, say upfront whether this is compensated or not, or what's covered, what's not, and have it be the same for all panelists. Because what we have seen occasionally is that some panelists will ask because they know they can ask and they'll ask for compensation and they might get it and others might not ask. And so they don't get it. And then if those panelists talk to each other and find out that somebody was paid for something that the exact same thing that somebody else was not paid for, and typically what this looks like is white men are much more prepared or maybe not prepared, but more willing to ask for that compensation. And so that's who will get paid more. And so if word gets out that, you know, a conference paid the white men on the panel and not the women and not the people of color, that is not a good look. And people talk, people share that type of information. And so the transparency and paying people equally for doing the same amount of work is a good idea. (laughs) That goes in a lot of places, but in speaking specifically. Yeah, I've been in scenarios like that where I was in a panel, then it turns out one of my colleagues that was in the same panel did not get compensated. Now, I didn't originally ask for compensation. They just said, here's what we're paying each panelist. But for some reason, she wasn't. And it was just like, oh, wow. Like, <laughs> she reached out like, did you get paid? I'm like, yeah, I got this much. I'm like, well, I didn't. And it was like, oh, wow. How did this happen? Right. And it's definitely not a good look because you're right. People do talk. So I usually, when I get proposed to speak somewhere, I usually might reach out to somebody that did it the year before or something. and be like, hey, I've been invited to this. What can I expect? Kind of thing. But We shouldn't have to go through all that. I like your idea of, hey, here's what we're paying each panelist. Does this work for you, right? And that's it, right? Because I'm not an expert at setting prices for, you know, (laughs) a webinar versus a keynote or whatever, like, because my main thing is being a financial planner, right? So we actually hear that a lot. And that's one of the things that we want to help on the voices side. So we talked a little bit about the conference certification and then the platform where we connect experts with journalists and experts with conference organizers. That is our voices platform. We'll be launching. It's already working in sort of test mode now, but we'll be fully launching it later this year. And one of the things that we'll be providing for the folks like you who are on the platform is resources and coaching and training around topics like this. What does normal compensation look like? And how do I ask for it without 
offending somebody or getting my potential speaking spot taken away, which probably is not going to happen. Same like negotiating compensation when you start a job, but it is a difficult conversation. And so we want to provide resources. I've been a speaker for a long time and before that was involved with conference planning. So I have a lot of knowledge to draw on and other speakers I can ask as well. And so we'll be providing resources there. One of the things that something that, that I've seen is that people will, especially, and it's disappointing because it's some of the large companies that you would know, reputable companies that will say, we don't have budget to pay a speaker. Meanwhile, they're paying someone else. They just don't have budget to pay you a speaker that looks like me. And I've declined places because I'm not going to speak for free. And because it takes you away from your pride. It takes time, it takes energy, and it takes effort. And the most valuable thing we have on this earth is not money, it's time. And so if someone's going to pay for anything, they need to pay for the time that you spend there. And I think that when I've spoken to advisors about this, I'm sure you've spoken to tons of advisors about this, but when I speak to advisors about it, they feel exactly like you're saying, like, oh, well, I don't know if I can say that because if I say that, then they won't have me come. And I'm saying if they don't want to pay you for your time, they don't deserve to have you. Yeah. It depends event to event. I have mixed feelings on this. Some events really don't have a budget for it and they don't pay any speakers, which is that's different than paying some speakers, right? And if it's an event that you want to go to, maybe it's an event you would have gone to anyways, there's things you can ask for, right? Maybe now you can go for free. The event that you already wanted to go to, you can have your registration come. It should start there at least. But or maybe they'll pay for your hotel or there's hotel, there's travel, there's meals. There's a lot of different things you can ask for. And for some folks who haven't spoken before, they want, you know, their first opportunity. They want some exposure. Often panels, you know, speaking on a panel is often unpaid. That is pretty normal. And sometimes speaking on a panel is is paid. That does vary. But being able to ask, being able to know what you can ask for on the speaker and expert side is really important and how to ask. And then the transparency on the conference side is something I, I wish we had more of. Just so there wasn't this weird dynamic, it feels like a power imbalance, right? And if everybody just knows like, okay, this conference doesn't pay speakers. And so I'm going to go because I want to go to the conference and I want some experience speaking. Great. And everybody knows that and makes that decision with that. Everybody has the same information. Great. And then people might decide, no, I don't really feel like going to this conference. It's not something I would go to. Why would I pay to fly to speak, to educate other people and be at a conference that I don't want to be at? But everybody needs to have that information to make smart, informed decisions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And before we wrap up, we're going to share this in the show notes, but where can we find more information about you individually and choir? Like, where do you live on social media and all that? So our website is hellochoir.com. And there you can find information about the certification, voices, our choir pledge, which we didn't talk too much about, but that's our public commitment to, as an attendee, speaker, or sponsor company a commitment to only interacting with conferences that meet some baseline diversity criteria. And so you can find that on our website. We have hundreds of pledge signers and you can sign right through there. If you're a sponsor company, put your logo up. And then as far as social media, our Twitter is at Hello Choir. 
Our Instagram is at Hello Choir. And then I'm at Liv Gagnon on Twitter. Sonia's at Sonia Dreisler. Sonia Dreisler on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can find me. I'm only nice. sometimes on Instagram, but I'm <laughs> almost always on Twitter and often on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, we'll share those in the show notes as well. So before we let you go, we have one more question for each of you. And that is, if you can give just one piece of advice to someone who wants to get involved and take action and help you make the profession more diverse and inclusive, what would you recommend? I would recommend, God, it probably depends on the person, right? Like, where are they sitting? What levers do they have to pull? Who can they influence? Or are they maybe new to the industry? It would probably depend. But generally speaking, my advice would be just do something. Don't wait. Don't wait for it to be perfect. Don't worry so much about saying the exact right thing and getting the exact right words. Just start with kindness and good intentions and do the work and know that, you know, if you're trying to create more equity and include more people and you may sometimes say the wrong thing or whatever, don't let that stop you. If you say the wrong thing and you realize it or somebody tells you, be grateful that somebody cared about you enough to reframe for you, apologize and learn and move on. Just step up and start. Start doing the work. I love it. Yeah. I would say to remember that every single one of us has ego as part of us, just as humans. And in order to do this work, especially as a white person or as a male ally, that we have to put the ego aside as hard as it can be so often because we will constantly be learning. And as someone who is in a space where you're doing this kind of work, people will come to you for answers often. It's important to remind yourself that you never have all the answers and there's always room to change your opinion and evolve your opinion. And so that part of it, that constant learning is just as important as the doing, because without that, we're not going to make the change that we think we're making. So that would be my word of advice. Absolutely. Those are such good compliments to each other. I think probably the choir word of advice would be listen. Listen to the voices of women, non-binary folks, people of color, and especially women of color. Listen to the people who have not been given the mic. Yeah. Listen, be willing to make mistakes, and always be learning. Mm-hmm. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you both for coming on. It's always a pleasure to speak with both of you. You just bring so much energy and so much like I get off and I'm like, I need to do more. So you do a lot. Thank you for the inspiration. You ladies inspire me more than you know to continue the good work. When you can look across the Twitter universe and see you two doing the work that you're doing and, and Luis as well. Definitely want to give you your roses and then say, King, great job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you are not alone. We will do anything we can to support you in any way we can. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Diversity in Action podcast. To learn more about the BLX internship program and sign up for our newsletter, please visit our website at blxinternship.org.